But for this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is there a circumstance in your life that you look back on with remembering the, the heartache that happened at the time, remembering that, that, that this occasion broke your heart, and even though you were profoundly disappointed at the time, you actually look back now with gratitude that that opportunity was missed. Perhaps it was that special someone you were dating in college. and Things were starting to get serious, but they came to a, a disappointing end. And of course, now that you're happily married to the man or woman of your dreams, you're glad for the one that got away. Maybe it's that job that you didn't land. Or because of some circumstance, you weren't able to take advantage of. But it turned out that greater opportunity came from that event. Perhaps you didn't pass that exam to get into that college program that you wanted to. Or or you didn't get that professional certification. But now you look back at those that are doing what you would have been doing and you think, oh, I'm so glad that that's not me. In today's text, David is told no by God. His dream is denied, yet God turns that disappointment into one of the greatest, most enduring blessings of the entire Bible. What we learned this morning from this passage is that God accomplishes greater plans than we can possibly develop for ourselves. Or put differently, God's plans are better than ours. Or put even more succinctly, God's way is best. This is a good reminder for us because we often have have great plans. We have things that are even good that we want to do. And what we need to be reminded of along with David this morning is that God's plans are always best. God's plans are always best. So I'd invite your attention now to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll begin our reading in verse 8, and we will read down through verse 16. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone. And have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in the place of their own, and move no more. Now shall the sons of wickedness oppress them, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body and I will establish my kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I removed from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Father, as we consider this your word this morning, we pray that you would help our hearts to be open, our ears to be attentive, and Lord, may your spirit change us through your word. May we understand this covenant, may we apply it to our own hearts, and be grateful for what you are doing and have done. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. 2 Samuel 8, I jumped right, excuse me, 7, I jumped right into the middle of the narrative because I wanted us to read the section that was the essence of the Davidic covenant. This, this commitment that God makes to the house of David. But it's important for us to understand the context as well. So what, what is the context? Well, the context, first of all, goes all the way back to Genesis 15. When Jacob was giving the blessings to his son, by all rights in those days, the eldest son would have been given the leadership of the family, would have been given the, the kingship. And so the throne, by all rights, by all expectations, should have gone to Reuben, the eldest son of Jacob. But he forfeited it. In Genesis 35, we see, verse 22, that he forfeited it because of his sexual sin. And so the, the throne, the scepter, the, the, the kingship, went then to the tribe of Judah, and the prophets predict that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Fast forward in, in redemptive history all the way to the time when the people chose a king for themselves and they set up Saul. And you remember that Saul had been rejected. His family had been cut off from the continuation of the monarchy. Saul would no longer be, uh, Saul's house would no longer be the ruling family because of his spiritual incompetence. It wasn't that he was merely a flawed man, it was that, that he had disqualified himself. And so we see earlier in the book of Samuel that the prophet told him that the kingdom would be torn away from him, rent away. So we see the context of Reuben, we see the context of Saul. We also see David then coming on the scene as a, as a man after God's own heart, a flawed man to be sure, as we see in his life. But, but the kingdom, uh, but, but David, a man after God's own heart, had been able to reunite the kingdom. So just prior to the text we read in 2 Samuel 5, the kingdom is unified under David, and then verses 6 through 10 David captures Jerusalem and makes it the capital city, which it will be for time to come. So there's this unified kingdom. There is this context of Jerusalem having become the capital. And so then David, as he sets up his kingship there in the city of Jerusalem, builds for himself a palace. This is again in 2 Samuel 5, just prior to what we read together. David contracts the work of building the palace to the king of Tyre and builds for himself a beautiful edifice that is the symbol of, of the power of the king, of the strength of Israel for David to live in. Following that, in 2 Samuel 6, David brings the ark to Jerusalem. 
which then makes Jerusalem the religious epicenter of Jewish worship. So now the, the symbol of the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant itself, resides there in Jerusalem, not only as the seat of the monarchy, but it is the very center of worship in 2 Samuel 6. And we see in this passage now in 2 Samuel 7 that God has given a gift to David. David experiences a period of rest from the enemies. Notice in our text this morning, 2 Samuel 1, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around. So God has given them a time of peace. David had been a, a warrior. He had been a man that had, had led the nation into battle against the enemies of God. But now David experiences rest. Well, David has a desire in this context. David longs for something and so we just read verse 1, now look at verse 2, chapter 7, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. David's heart is struck with his contrast. I've built a beautiful palace for myself. The monarchy has a place to say, yet, yet God's house is still temporary. It's a tent. It's not the beautiful edifice that I get to live in. And so that causes David to desire something, to long for something. The, the burden that David has is, of course, to build what will come to be known as the temple. The, the permanent structure that houses the worship of the one true God. A place that, that Israel could look to. As, as finding the presence of God, a, a place that the nations around could see the glory of God housed in a temple. And so, commending his desire in verse 3, Nathan the prophet says to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Seems like a good idea. I mean, David, you want to you build a house for God? This, is, this sounds like a wonderful plan. Sure, go do it. And the prophet, without having consulted God, gives him what, he, what seems to him to be a natural answer. That's a good thing. You want to do a good thing. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 4, it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? So Nathan is now sent back by God to, to amend his initial human answer with the word of the Lord. And so he comes back to him with a negative answer based on God's message to him that night. Now, you may wonder, what was God thinking? Like, we don't always know, but in this text, we actually do get a little bit of a peek into the, the rationale, the reason for God's refusal. So we we pick up in verse 6 where we left off, For I have not dwelt in the house since the time that I brought the children of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. So the first reason is given to us in verse 7, and that is that a permanent structure is not yet needed. Notice verse 7, Wherever I have moved about with the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? 
What is God saying? I don't need one. I don't need a temple. And so the very first reason that God gives in explanation through his prophet Nathan is that a temple is not yet necessary. It is not God's timing for a temple. But you'll also notice in verse 7 a hint of something else, and that is that God hadn't asked for it. God hadn't requested a temple. Never in all of these years of wilderness wandering, never even in the settlement of Jerusalem had God said, hey, why haven't you built me a temple? Never had God commanded. And so we're talking about an idea here that although good, although something that God would accomplish in his time was not something that God had said it was David's idea instead of God's. We also know from 1 Chronicles 22, you don't need to turn over, that one of the other reasons that the the responsibility was not given to David is because David had been given a responsibility, but but it was as a man of war. He was a man of great bloodshed. He was a man who was a warrior, and that was not the man that God chose to build his temple. Furthermore, we see in 1 1 Kings 5, verses 3 and 4, if you care to, to look later, that the political conditions were not stable enough. And so God knew that, yes, David had been given rest, he had been given peace, but this was a a tenuous peace. It was a a perilous peace. It was not one that was long-lasting. And so the geopolitical climate was not such that this was a good time to be building a temple. That time would come, but it was not yet. And so God had his reasons for saying no. And, and in His grace, He even articulates some of those reasons, which God does not have to do, but chooses to. I just want to pause for a moment and remind us of something. We as Christians have imbibed this idea from the world that we perhaps have not even realized is a worldly idea. Society tells us what? You can be anything you want to be. Follow your dreams. So we have this slightly more Christianized version, and that is, I can do anything to serve the Lord that I want to. But that is the exact opposite of being a servant. Servants don't choose what they do. The master chooses what they do. Servants don't say, this is how I would like to serve you. They look to the master for him to say how he longs to be served. As believers, we need to be reminded that God in his grace allows us to serve him. Sometimes we will serve him in a way that seems good to us, that that meets with our desires. And in fact, I think often God uses our own desires to direct us toward a certain path of service, but the reality is it's not about us. It's not about our desires. It's not about what we long to do. It is about serving the master. Because especially Western American Christians have this notion of follow your dreams and just kind of spread a layer of Jesus on it and it's all good, we we get a little bit bristly when it comes to 
serving in a way that's not our way. We talk about things like qualification for ministry, gender roles, giftedness in the church, church officers, other related topics like this, and we bristle with this Western notion that it's not fair. I should be able to do whatever we want to fill in our blank. Even when we consider whether we should sacrifice something for our brothers and sisters in Christ, the response that often wells up in our heart is, well, there's nothing wrong with it. I can do it if I want to. This is all symptomatic of the reality that we want to serve on our terms. We want to do God's will in our time, in our way, and really it's our will. David was told no. Has it ever occurred to you that perhaps you cannot, you should not do everything you want? Perhaps even good things, valid desires, aspirations of great things. I wonder this morning, do you have aspirations? Do you have things that that you want to do for God? I hope you do. I hope there are things that you long to do, things that you hope to accomplish for God, but we ought to put all of those in the context of what James says, if the Lord will, we will do this or that. Even in the midst of this heartbreaking refusal, we see God's intention to do much more, more than what we want. That's what he did for David. And so David's negative response, excuse me, God's negative response to David is just another introduction to what he wanted to tell David. God's no's are followed by God's yeses. And so the very heart of it is in the last part of verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11. We see it also in verse 5. You will not make me a house, but I will make you a house. That is the very essence of the covenant. D- David says, I want to make you a house, Lord. And God says, no, but I'm going to make you a house. That's the covenant. That is God unilaterally deciding, no, you will not do something good for me. I will pour out great blessing on you. I will do a work in and through you, David. And so the covenant is given. I will not make, you will not make me a house, but I will make you a house. So what is in the covenant? Well, let's, let's look at it briefly, but before we look at the, the particulars that are in it, we need to ask ourselves, the actual word covenant is not found in this passage, which might prompt us to ask, is this actually a covenant? Well, 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, David calls it an everlasting covenant. Ethan called it a covenant. Psalm 89, verses 34 through 37, call it a covenant. This is, for for centuries to come, one of the great covenants of God's work in and through His people. So what's in the covenant? Well, there are several promises that are given. Keep um, 2 Samuel 7 open before you, and I'm just going to point out some of them. Now, there are kind of two categories. There are two categories of promises. The first category is promises that are fulfilled, at least to a certain extent, are fulfilled in David's lifetime. We see these things happen while David is still alive. David sees them happening. The first is in verse 9, I will make for you a great name. 
like, all, like, uh, like the name of great men who are on the earth. David, I will make your name great as the first aspect of the promises. Another promise that was filled, at least in part, under David's reign was a place for the people. David's reign was called the gold is is called by some the golden era of Israel. It, it was a a great time for Israel. It was a time of peace. It was a time of expansion of territory. It was it was God's people had a place to stay. They had unprecedented stability, and so in part, this promise was fulfilled in David's lifetime. But what was seen in David's lifetime was but a foretaste of what would come. You see, the peace that David enjoyed, the stability that God's people enjoyed there in the land was was short-lived. And so God's people, even today, look forward to the day that will come when they will enjoy ultimate peace under the ultimate monarch, when they will truly be stable, when they will not be threatened by their enemies around. And so a place for God's people was promised, and it still waits its ultimate fulfillment, even though a foreshadow of it was, was accomplished in David's lifetime. And then the third aspect closely relates to that in verse 11. He said, I've caused you rest from all your enemies. So God gives rest to His people. Now there are some aspects of it that would not be seen until David was off the scene. Other aspects of this covenant are, uh, in verse 12, a seed. After I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So Solomon and all the descendants of David are a fulfillment of this promise made to the good things that God will do for David. Now this motif of a seed continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the prophets celebrate this seed of David. And of course, we know that the ultimate seed of David, the, the greatest descendant of David was whom? It's Christ, right? I mean, this, this was fulfilled in Solomon. It was fulfilled in his progeny. But in, in the greatest fulfillment, Christ came as the seed of David. He would be given a kingdom, verse 13 and verse 16, both promise that the house of David would rule forever. Forever. This is an eternal throne. One that will never end. So God establishes it here in 2 Samuel, but it is established forever. Now, David's descendants are not sitting on the throne right now. They're not ruling. So what is the fulfillment of this prophecy? Well, again, it's in Christ. This one who, who we celebrate at, at this time of year in December, we, we celebrate the, the coming king. All of this is linked to the promise that was made to David, the covenant that God makes to David, that a king will come and he will sit on the throne of his father, David, forever. Now, in, in this verse, we see 15 times the word house, verses 1, 2, 5, 6, 7, 11, and 16. 15 times we use it. 
And it's neat how God, God likes puns. Right? He's got a little play on words here, right? David wants to build a house, and by that he means a physical structure that, that you can see with the eye. And, and God uses kind of the other meaning of the word house. The, the descendants, the, the progeny, the seed, the, the eternal inheritance, right? And so God says, you want to build a house. You want to build this thing that will collapse, but I'm going to build something enduring, something lasting forever. I will build you a house, David. And he does it. He does it through the person of Jesus Christ. And of course, all of this centers on the monarchy, verses 13 and 16, refer to the authority to rule God's people. This throne of David is not the same as the throne of God in heaven. God's throne has always been from eternity past. David's was established in his lifetime, but Christ will rule. And although he came the first time as a suffering savior, he will come again as a conquering king. And so some of these were fulfilled in David's life. David got to see them. Some of them he didn't, at least not from his vantage point here on earth. Now, I think because of that, there's a, a word of warning that is important. We know God's way is best. We may... We may not always see these, these promises of God. We may not always see the goodness of God be fulfilled on our timetable. And this is where we must trust. It may not seem good to us for God to say no, for God to take something. It may not seem good to us to lose that loved one or to suffer a physical malady or to endure that financial hardship But God's promises are sure. He always does what is best. And even when we don't see it in our timing, even if we don't see it in our lifetime, God is accomplishing His own good ends. This is what He does for David, even though perhaps David didn't see it in its complete fulfillment, because God's promises are sure. This is an enduring covenant. It is a certain covenant. Now, we know that there is an element of conditionality, right? Occupation of the throne is conditioned on obedience. And so the house of David does not rule today. But the the covenant, the, the establishment of the throne forever, the establishment of David's seed in a ruling capacity forever is certain. We see it right here in this passage. We see it in 2 Samuel 7. There's... There's at least four indications. Uh, He uses the word forever in verses 14 and 15. The plain wording of the passage is clear that God intends to fulfill this promise. The presence will not depart even, even in the face of sin. Notice verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, what? The covenant's canceled. No, that's not what it says. It says, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of my son, But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Saul, the kingdom, was taken away from his house. David's throne will be established. It's a permanent covenant. In verse 24, uh, 2 Samuel 7, David responds prayerfully, You have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, 
have become their God. David understood that this was a, an enduring, unconditional covenant. It was something good that God intended to do through his house. If you think about the life of David, right? You think about just a few chapters away. We're in chapter 7. In chapter 11, we find the horrible incident of David's sin with Bathsheba, his subsequent murder of Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. The very context of David's life is clear to us that this is an unconditional covenant. And then David's final words in this passage remind us that it is an unconditional covenant as well. Again, if you're taking notes, you may want to jot down a couple other passages to look at at another time. Psalm 72, we see the covenant celebrated by the king as a permanent covenant. When you read through the prophetic books, it's clear that God is intending that the seed of David will rule forever. We see it in most all of the prophets. In particular, you see it in Isaiah 9, Amos 9, Jeremiah 30. We've been studying through the book of Acts. At the very beginning of Acts, in chapter 2, we see Peter's sermon, where in verse 30, he references this as a permanent covenant made with David, Acts 20, verse 30. But I think perhaps the passage that is most appropriate for us to end with is Luke 1's celebration of the Davidic covenant. Because this is, this is the heart of the gospel, and it is the very thing that we celebrate at Christmas time. And so for us, Luke 1 is a, is a, a very poignant reminder that the covenant of David is fulfilled in Christ the angel announcing to Mary that she will give birth to Jesus. Luke 1, 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And in that phrase is imbibed all the meaning of the Davidic covenant and all the hopes that were enmeshed in that covenant throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. He will reign, verse 33, over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made to David in this passage. David wanted to build a building. If we go to what Solomon, who's the one who ultimately did build it, it was a spectacle. It was a sight to see. It was great. The nations of the world were in awe over this, this marvelous edifice, but it was still just a building. And in fact, it was knocked down. It was torn down by the enemies of Israel. It was not enduring. It was not permanent. As marvelous as it was, what David wanted to build would only be temporary, but what God intended to do was so much greater because he wanted to accomplish the work of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to today, to the church, to the people that are born out of this good news found in Jesus. What God's people needed more than an edifice 
What God's people needed more even than a, a permanent monarchy was the one who could fulfill all of their hopes and dreams by saving them from their sin. And that's what you and I need this morning, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We need one who can take upon himself, as Christ did, the punishment for our sin and all who will come to him in faith and repentance. I wonder this morning, have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time when you have depended on Jesus Christ and turned from your sin, knowing that he is the only hope of salvation? This son of David that was provided is the coming king, and we must bow our knee to him, the ultimate monarch. God has accomplished something great through David, but it wasn't because of David. It wasn't even because of David's own good intention. He accomplished so much greater. He authored the gospel through David's line. May we be reminded, whether we are struggling this morning with accepting God's plan for us, whether this morning you are contemplating bowing the knee to Christ and, and, and accepting Him as your Lord and Savior, God has much better plans than we have for ourselves. God's ways are always good. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, for the reminders that we find here in the life of David, the good things that you have, have accomplished through, through David, your servant. And we see ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ.